Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the budget fight that could gum up the Pentagon. This really can get ugly. It could be the longest CR on record in modern history. A thumbs up on the new data action plan from one of the architects of the data strategy. It extends many of the same things that was in the original uh, action plan for year one. And it recognizes some of the progress that was made. It also recognizes that agencies kind of entered the entire process at different stages. And a case of bot fever at the Interior Department. We are looking at putting bots in as much of the acquisition lifecycle as it's reasonable. It's Thursday, November 4th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Kurt Del Bene will be the next chief information officer of the Department of Veterans Affairs, if the Senate confirms him. Del Bene was executive vice president of corporate strategy, core services, and operations at Microsoft until September when he retired. He was a senior advisor at Health and Human Services in the Obama administration. The new chief data officer of the United States is on the job. Denise Ross joins the Office of Science and Technology Policy from the National Conference on Citizenship. Ross has served in government as a Presidential Innovation Fellow. The deadline for government contractors to get all their employees vaccinated is sliding to the right. Billy Mitchell's writing about the change at fedscoop.com. Billy, welcome. What do we know about how the deadline is moving? Sure. So the headline is that the deadline was originally December 8th, which is uh, quickly approaching, but has now been moved back to January 4th with some other new rules that the administration implemented Thursday. Uh, those rules are uh, one for all general employers in out out there in in the across the states um, requiring that if you have more than 100 employees you have to have them vaxxed or prove uh, that they have negative tests um, and then the other one is any uh, federal health care workers or health care workers that work at facilities with uh, medicare medicaid funding must also be vaccinated so because there's these different deadlines and those were going to be january 4th the administration said hey let's put them all on the same date so they bumped federal contractors back any sense, anything that we know about any different um, requirements for the contractors? It's the same requirement as it would have been December 8th, just moving to a new same, date? Same requirements. Um, the, the task force that's sort of in charge of providing the guidance, though, earlier this week did come out with some broad flexibility in how contractors can enforce uh, their requirements. So across the board, it's unclear. There has been some major airlines, for instance, who have said everybody needs to be vaccinated by the original December 8th deadline, now January 4th. Um, so it, it's unclear how contractors might enforce it. Um, but the administration has required, you know, you need to be vaccinated. It's not the same. It's, it's basically the same as federal employees. Billy Mitchell, thanks very much. Thank you. You can read more about the vaccine mandate, more on all these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. Leading government cyber experts like the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Jenny Easterly, will join me at Palo Alto's Public Sector Ignite Virtual Conference. It's happening Thursday, November 18th. I hope you'll join me, too. You'll learn about key cybersecurity issues impacting agencies like zero trust and endpoint detection and response. You can see the agenda and sign up now at ignite.paloaltonetworks.com.
December 3rd is the deadline for the current continuing resolution funding the federal government to expire. Another CR could stop some big Defense Department programs in their tracks. Mackenzie Eaglin is senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and following the continuing resolution's impact on Defense Department pro, uh, programs. Mackenzie, welcome. Thanks for coming on. What is the biggest issue? We talk about new starts impacted by CRs all the time. What's the biggest issue financially with some of these programs that are already working through the Defense Department acquisition and production process? Welcome. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the biggest issues will just be the uh, the churn in the system as a result of this, right? Because because it also includes expansion of any program, and there are a lot of misaligned funding and accounts and programs uh, when you just freeze spending, uh, according to last year, which is what a continuing resolution does. And so, what we have here are these misleading headlines that the Government Accountability Office report you know, put out where Capitol Hill now says, well, you know, CRs aren't that bad because look, GAO said so. And actually, if you dig a little deeper and read a, a little bit more, you'll the GAO corrected its misperceived headline to say, no, no, no. Operating within an inefficient system is not the same thing as operating efficiently. And that's the key here when it's particularly when it comes to defense programs, keeping them on schedule, keeping them at cost, and keeping the people employed that you need to do all of those, uh, build all those good services and products. All right. Um, this list is not really, uh, doesn't inspire confidence in the process. You write here, select programs from the Army's list of new R&D efforts negatively Im- affected by a continuing resolution this year. Uh, long-range maneuverable, maneuverable, easy for me to say, fires, applied research projects that focus on capability enhancements for soldiers and squads, all-domain convergence and advanced technology, mobile and survive. There's a bunch of others that you have on here. Um, is there nothing that the department can do about the way it allocates resources to prevent this year-to-year happening? Because we're in, I think, the I can't even remember, at least a decade's worth of CRs affecting whatever programs, the programs of record happen to be at that time. Is there nothing the department can do um, budget-wise to prevent this problem from happening? Well, that's a, a surprisingly smart and easy question. You would think that's the first one everyone would ask, right? And if you, if you look at my article, uh, the first thing I link to are these very blasé comments by Navy leadership, as in nothing to see here a three-month Uh, spending freeze, no big deal. But then the article goes on to say, but six months, it's a disaster and it's the total end of the acquisition world. And so what I try to show here with these lists of Army and Air Force programs in particular, everything from mobile protected firepower to the B-21 Raider bomber, right? All of these programs are impacted. And the two things you can do are one, prepare now for the expectation of a longer than a three-month continuing resolution, which the Pentagon does, leadership doesn't want to do, nor does the White House, because it's admitting failure. It's, the, it's in the failure of one-party government that can't move appropriations bills. And I understand that. I wouldn't want to do that either, but it's just good governance. And then two is to prepare Congress now for the requested anomalies that they that you want approved in the next continuing resolution, which is coming because Senator Shelby said it's coming. And once one member says it, then it's just, you know, it's already left the station. So after December 3rd, there will be another continuing resolution. At that time, the Pentagon should have, you know, served up on a platter its list of these programs, for example, and say, hey, here's how it harms operators out there forward right now. And it costs more when we push it off and help us out. You stole my question because the question that I was going to ask was, 
what happens if we get another one? I keep hearing the same thing now, as you say, Senator Shelby's confirmed it. It's pretty much going to happen. It's probably reasonable to think it will extend into January past the uh, seating of the new Congress. And the idea will be we'll let the new Congress sort it all out. Uh, what do, does the problem get worse for the Pentagon the longer the CR goes? It 100 percent doesn't age well. So every continuing resolution that gets added on to the last one, the time crunch for spending the available money when it becomes available, if you even know that, becomes a smaller window. And so then every, you know, many programs slip to the right, even into the next fiscal year 2023. And that just builds this giant, you know, bathtub of things that need to move out of the system, you know, cash and awards that need to be let and through a tiny, you know, soda straw funnel that cannot, uh, the system can't absorb all of that. And so Congress then calls that money, use it or lose it. And the next year it goes away because they see an inefficient, you know, defense department that couldn't spend the money they offered them, you know, up on a pair. And of course, that's not true. That's not exactly how it works. Everybody's at fault here for the delay, but then there's less dollars the next year. And often you have to renegotiate the contract or push back the you know award date and other companies and service providers have moved on to something else. One of the budget watchers that I really pay attention to in this town said last week, he expects a full year continuing resolution. The new Congress will be just as stuck as this Congress is. There's potential for one or both chambers to change uh, a party leadership uh, that means there's no longer one party rule, and that makes the process even more complicated. That it said that it would make me think then, based on what you just said, Mackenzie, means that the d- entire department really gets bollocked up if there's a full year CR. This really can get ugly. It could be the longest CR on record in modern history because once we get into the spring, regardless of if there were leadership changes, um, you know, the then it will truly be uh, what we've seen in years past, which is a Congress saying, let the midterms decide, you know, the outcomes for these intractable questions, which is the total discretionary spending account and how to allocate that versus defense and non-defense, which is the question fundamentally we're talking about here. That's the question at, at hand, but it gets wrapped up in debt ceiling and it gets wrapped up in infrastructure and things that have nothing to do with, you know, defense per se. Um, and so, Everybody will just the 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 inertia only builds and it truly gets more intractable over time because even uh, more poison votes, so to speak, are taken by both parties that upset the other party. You know, I'm not going to help you pass the debt ceiling. I'm not going to help you pass infrastructure, whatever it is, because you just did reconciliation on a party line vote, et cetera. And so all of these votes serve to poison the well of the limited well of goodwill on Capitol Hill that almost guarantees that could be a year. I mean, that could be longer than a year-long CR, actually, which would really be frightening. And it's something I don't think anyone at the Defense Department is thinking about or or yet talking about. Mackenzie Eaglin of the American Enterprise Institute, thanks very much as always. My pleasure. Thank you. You can read more about the CR's impact on the Defense Department in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com.
The new federal data strategy year two action plan includes a long list of actions agencies should take. The plan came out late because of the presidential transition. Suzette Kent's a board member of Kent Advisory Services. She's former federal chief information officer. Suzette, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. As one of the architects of the original data strategy, what do you see in this year two action plan that you'd like and that's important for agencies to move forward? Welcome. Well, thank you first for having me, Francis. Uh, I, I was thrilled to see the federal data strategy come out. Um, it extends many of the same things that was in the original uh, action plan for year one, and it recognizes some of the progress that was made. It also recognizes that agencies kind of entered the entire process at different stages. So there's a you know double down on many of the things with making data, you know, searchable, findable, maturity model, security, all the, you know, important things with additional measures. And I was really pleased to see the additional emphasis on workforce development and and talent development, um, because I think that was one of the learnings as as we we tried to um, advance the overall sophistication and maturity across both the foundational activities and start to look at the enterprise, we recognize that there were skills um, that needed to be developed and they've made great progress on those. I was also um, excited to see some of the focus on data specifically for AI and automation. We talked about that, but now there's some key points in there. And um, a a new use case on the um, wildland fire uh, fuels data management I think is important and was is new, you know, in there, but that gives an interesting application. And I think their intent is to find something that can be more broadly used across the enterprise. So lots of lots of continuation of the accomplishments, um, pushing forward and still elevating the importance of data for decision making and um, for lots of different purposes. What I think is most important about the action plan, Suzette, is that it it seems to match what the agencies are already undertaking on their own or what they're undertaking as a result of the original release of the data strategy. The CDO at the Air Force, Eileen Vadreen, was on the program yesterday, and that show is in the archives at thedailyscooppodcast.com. But she was talking about the workforce. We probably talked about the workforce as much as we talked about the processes and procedures and the technology that she's undertaking to try to drive data all throughout the way the Air Force operates. Where do you think the biggest uh, delta is between what the workforce ideally will be at maybe year five or at the conclusion of the year 10 of this data strategy and where it is today, Suzette? The original foundational activities were about the workforce doing the data work. So I'm, I'm going to separate kind of into those who um, are, let's say, broadly in the data science and technology area, and they are applying very specific skills for how you, whether it's architecture, whether it's use, whether it's privacy, um, whether it's the types of, of things that we have to do for security and resiliency, those are a, those are a hard set of skills where we absolutely had to develop the foundational capabilities. So she probably talked a lot about what they were doing in those spaces. But as we mature, the other part is an overall cultural use and kind of understanding of 
the importance of data. So that's automation. That is the role of data in decision-making. That's the appreciation of how you use and interpret data and you learn from data. And that's an all of agency, all of government uh, practice. And, and that one is going to be a, a continuous journey. And that one's going to be um you know, kind of lead, but the more progress we make in the, the underlying capabilities, the more we're going to extend the culture because the value is absolutely there and the impact is, is exciting and that will help us further the overall journey. Before we started uh, recording, Suzette, you told me about a project that you're working on that is an example of the value of all of the data that the federal government has and the value that it has for not just the government itself and not to trade it amongst itself, but to put it out there so that people in the private sector can use it for the benefit of everybody the same way as the government's trying to use it for the benefit of everybody. Tell me that example again and why you think those kinds of projects are important. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, it, I'm very enthusiastic about the, the art of the possible and through the Coleridge Initiative, you know, Nancy Potok and Julie Lane and I worked on the original federal data strategy together, and we're still working together through, you know, this not-for-profit, particularly to look at use of federal data in scientific communities and use of, of publicly available federal data to inform other type of decision-making and, and research. So if, if your listeners are interested, you know, take a, take a look at the, the Coleridge Initiative. But the thing that um, we recently did was looking at, and, and, you know, there were many of the agencies, NSF, uh, you know, NOAA and USDA involved, where we looked at how publicly available data were being used and we used AI and natural language processing to link those so that federal agencies could see with the research community, not only what was being used, but how it was being used. So that created a dialogue and a discussion about what was valuable, what were the outcomes, we heard from some of the agency folks that they were surprised at, and, and at some of the ways the data were being used. And it created a dialogue about if, if I am looking into this, what could we do to improve that? And, and that was really exciting. And, you know, now we're looking at something where it's linking um, scanner information when you, when you go to the grocery store to nutritional databases so that we can understand at a really granular level, what does a healthy meal cost? So, you know, now um, I am an advocate of the federal data strategy from both the inside and the outside, you know, and on the outside, I see, a, um, I see it as a signal to researchers or people who are, are uh, building types of businesses and things like that about what they can expect um, and what's coming. And again, just fuel those ideas for opportunities. So back to the uh, federal data strategy year two action plan uh, that is just newly out. Does this look to you like it keeps the 10-year strategy on track if agencies continue to develop uh, their strategies individually and stay on pace according to this action plan, Suzette? Yeah, absolutely, Francis. It, it, it is continuing, you know, on the path, um, advancing 
both the maturity, but also d- continuing to deliver outcomes. And that's what um, that's what gets agencies excited. That's what gets the greater population um, interested and what will keep keep us all you know, on track, uh, particularly as we look at increased uses of automation, the importance of having you know, facts for decision making and the um, things that are discoverable. And that, uh, I think, achieving those types of outcomes are going to keep people not only on track, having a federal data strategy each year proves that progress is being made. Suzette Kent, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to see you again. Thank you, sir. You too. You can read more about the Federal Data Strategy Action Plan in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. Coming on Friday's show, the State Department's new Evolve contract will help them hit the gas pedal on the move to the cloud. Rob Hankinson, State's Deputy Director of Information Technology Infrastructure, is here. That Daily Scoop Podcast debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Interior Department's acquisition office has a new worker named Bob that everybody loves, but Bob isn't real. He's a robotic process automation bot. Andrea Brandon, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Interior for Budget, Finance, Grants, and Acquisition, was part of a panel I moderated at the George Mason University Defense Acquisition University 2021 Government Contracting Conference Wednesday. After our panel, she told me more about Bob and why he's so popular. He actually does our uh, acquisition closeout process. And so basically, we looked across the business life cycle uh, within the acquisition life cycle process to determine if we want to use a newer technology, where would it be in the acquisition life cycle? Where would we want that technology to be? Where do we think the most use would come from and so forth? And so what we determined is that the acquisition closeout process um, is something that gets the last attention. It gets the least a bit of attention because we're so busy at the end of the fiscal year trying to get contract awards out that we haven't had the a time and the opportunity to close out a good number of contracts, i.e. lead to um, unliquidated obligations that could be deobligated and put to better use, right? So we looked at the technologies that are available and we determined that robotics process automation would be the best use where we could get a repetitive process um, in acquisition closeout. We could have the bot uh, the RPA, the bot, look at the different uh, obligations uh, that, that are on the books for acquisitions, and it can actually deobligate. It can, it can do a little bit of an analysis for us, um, but it would deobligate the, uh, the transaction and actually present it to the contracting officers and say, yes or no, do you want to continue on with this action? So, yes, Bob is our, is our robotics process automation project that we have uh, within DOI. Everyone loves Bob. Mm-hmm. The contracts people love Bob. The finance people love Bob because it helps us de-obligate the money in a more timely way. And so, and, and because everyone loves Bob, now we're looking at other RPA projects across DOI. So I made a joke on stage about the fact that there's nobody that hates somebody named Bob. Everybody <laughs> would like that. And after I thought about it, you, you responded, I think, very eloquently. And as I processed your response, it occurred to me, you probably did that on purpose rather than just saying this is bot X19428, that portrays something, I imagine, Mm -hmm. to the person or people that are working with Bob. Um, She understands the person that's using Bob. This Bob is not here to replace me, 
Bob is here to help me. And so you did that on purpose, I guess. Definitely. To personalize the bot, number one. And as we have more bots, we are going to be naming them all. Mm. But to actually make it more user-friendly, to make it more personable to the contracting specialist, uh, to the contracting officer, to the actual humans that we need to accept the bot. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, you're right. We wanted to make sure that our acquisition workforce knows that we're not trying to replace them. We're trying to replace the low-value work. that they're doing with this bot technology so that they can be using their um, their current abilities to do high-value work for us. But yes, we named them Bob, and it's more personable, and they can relate more to the bot. I suggested on stage, and I was only half kidding, that Francis, I think, would be a great name for one of your bots, so we'll see how that plays out. But how do you determine what, what the next ones are? How do you determine which are the functions where you would see the best return on investment, the best impact on mission, or whatever the criteria are that you use to decide how to move forward. So for the acquisitions field, we actually looked at the entire acquisitions lifecycle. We made sure it was defined very well uh, according to DOI acquisition processes. And then we asked for use cases from the field. So from all of our contract specialists, our program and missions people, uh, we asked from the executives and so forth, we asked for use cases. And so we've actually received hundreds of use cases. Um, and some of them, uh, they're use cases for bots, and some of them are use cases for other types of technology. But as we look at the use cases and the business process that's um, actually spelled out in the use case, that's how we made a determination of which ones might have a better chance at us using an RPA, a robotics process automation. Um, we had to determine whether we wanted an intelligent bot or an unintelligent bot. Um, I think I talked about that a little bit on the stage. You know, the unintelligent one has strict boundaries around it, whereas the intelligent one can make a little bit of a decision, still with some boundaries, but it can actually make decisions. The other unintelligent bot, and Bob is, uh, Bob, forgive us, but it's an unintelligent bot. He does oh. exactly what we told him to do. Oh, poor Bob. <laughs> yeah, he has lots of boundaries around him. But definitely we look at the use cases to make those determinations. How do you expect this to propagate itself throughout your acquisition shop? What does this look like a year from now or two years from now or five years from now? Is this something, I mean, do you expect to see these all over the place or are there boundaries as to where bots can go? You'll get to a point of critical mass and then that'll be it. So we have what I call bot fever. Um, kind of, we use the. We even have a little musical that goes from Saturday Night Fever, you know, oh, that old no. movie from back in the day. I yes. won't say when back in the day, but oh. you know, you, you know, we've got bot fever. So we are looking at putting bots in as much of the acquisition life cycle as it's reasonable. So when we look at the use cases, we determine, for instance, we have another bot that we're working on, or it's in the pilot phase with regard to terms and conditions. So we have um, in that particular piece of the acquisition life cycle, we've made a determination that we can actually, when we need to modify contracts and we need to add in a quick term and condition into all the contracts, we put together a bot that can do that very quickly for us. Um, So we're looking at the acquisition lifecycle. We're determining where it would be good to put a bot in or another type of technology, and we're not. And across DOI, we've actually have a number of bots, um, and we've been giving them different names. The the new one is called Bobby. So, (laughs) A younger version of Bob, I guess. A little Bob. 
But we are, oh, I like that little Bob. Oh, that's kind of cute. Okay. Well, then you can go Bob Jr. <laughs> yeah. And you have a million of them. You yeah. Can. So we are looking at various bots. We have um, a lot of different use cases that are actually either moving into pilot phase or we're still building out the use phase, working with uh, the, the CIO office and, and our IT specialists to make sure that everything is you know, in accordance with all of the different uh, instructions and laws and so forth, and, mm-hmm. and we're in compliance. But definitely, we've got bot fever, and we are looking at as many bots um, as possible that uh, that makes sense, where it makes sense in the acquisition lifecycle. You can read more about Bob and the bot fever at Interior and find a link to the panel with Andrea that I moderated in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Rob Hankinson of the State Department's on Friday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.